0: The statements of Elihu, who's been sort of the last individual speaking and giving some of his explanation and comments regarding Job's suffering, and then next week we'll pick up in chapter 38, where finally, finally, the Lord answers. Finally, we get to hear the Lord's response, which is what we've all been waiting for. All of you who've tracked from the very beginning of this study, that's that's your reward, what you've been been waiting for. But uh, let's pray. Why don't we, Father? Thank you for the opportunity this evening to be together and to be able to just focus on your son, Jesus, our King, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you've opened our eyes to the reality of your rulership over all, Lord, despite what's happening on this earth. Lord, you set up kings and kingdoms and you tear them down, but Lord, you rule and reign constantly and will forever and we just rejoice in that reality and we ask tonight as we open the word of god that you'd help us now lord you said that if we draw near to you that you would draw near to us so we're trusting your promise as we continue in our worship now we've come here lord whether our body or our mind is tired or weary we just pray that you would strengthen us in the inward man with might and power by your spirit and that you would quicken us by the holy spirit to be receptive to the truth of the Word of God, and that you, as always, Lord, would find a way to speak to us by your Spirit's ministry as we survey and look through the Word of God together. So bless your Word and speak to us now by your Spirit's ministry, and we ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. All right, if you're not turned there yet, Job chapter 36 is where we pick up in our study together through Job this evening as we're sort of rounding off and finishing the comments of this younger man, Elihu, or again, Elihu, however you would properly pronounce his name, who has been the last individual now to take his turn to speak things uh, to Job and to the three friends who have been in dialogue with Job throughout this lengthy process as they've been trying to reconcile the sufferings of Job and the tragedy that he has gone through on multiple different levels, and as we come to this point, we didn't quite finish the remainder of chapter 36. We went as far as verse 24, I believe, 24-25, excuse me, last time, and Elihu now as he rounds out the rest of his comments in chapter 36 and 37, he really just puts his focus now upon the greatness of God and really seems to just want to emphasize that God is sovereign and that God is so far above that it would be foolish for any man to to challenge him or to question him. And this was, remember, kind of what was the thing that was burning within him as he felt like that to some degree this was what was happening, that Job's three friends and even Job himself was to some degree kind of challenging God or God's righteousness. And this was something that uh, was bothersome to him so as he kind of concludes chapter 36 and into the chapter 37 his real focus is upon speaking about the greatness of god if you notice as he opens in verse uh, 26 as he carries on the very thing he declares is behold that is take notice consider that's the idea of behold god is great And we do not know him. Now, not the idea that we cannot know him. The idea is that we don't know God in his fullness. That the infinite God is so great and we are so finite and there is such a gap between us and all of who God is that it's impossible for us to fully know God. That's what he means when he says God is great and we don't really know him. The idea is in his fullness. He says, nor can we know the number of his years can they be discovered again the reason being is that even the reality of that we live in this time continuum here on this earth uh, god is the eternal god god has no beginning he has no end in fact the bible declares that he states of himself that he is the beginning and he is the end uh, so God dwells in the eternal. He is the eternal God. And that's part of where our challenge and frustration even comes from at times is that we, we kind of live in a realm of the time continuum where there are hours and days and weeks and months and years, and we measure things in those ways. And, and it kind of seems like, it's, like something's taken so long. And then yet the Bible tells us in Peter's writings that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. Uh, so uh, with God, when we would say, man, Lord, it's been forever. I mean, w- Jesus has been 2000 years. When are you returning? And he says, well, I mean, it's been about two days to me. I mean, in his realm, it doesn't have the same connotation to us as time. But that's where our frustration comes from. And really, that's where part of our challenge comes from. If you think about it, even in the very realm of things that bring suffering into our lives, like what Job's going through. Because of course, when we experience suffering, right, the, the, the thing that we want in suffering more than anything is for it to end as quickly as possible. And time then becomes our biggest enemy. Uh, so we want the suffering to come to a close quickly, whether we're having a challenge. Maybe we we'll feel like we're not getting answers regarding something. We're kind of in a kind of in a fog and we're not getting clarity or we feel like, man, this has been a tough season or a really challenging trial. And it seems like it's lasted so long for us. And that frustration comes from the reality that it seems so long for us. But from God's perspective, time is measured very differently. That, that our life is but a vapor to God. It's like a blink of the eye. It's, it's passed very quickly because God understands the reality of eternity. And I believe that once we're free from these earthly bodies that are constrained to time and we're in the presence of the Lord in eternity, we will realize that in its fullest sense, that like what Paul writes in the New Testament, that, that our are, are, are present and momentary sufferings. Like he was, that, that, that these sufferings that seem so weighty that they're just momentary and present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared with all the glory that's gonna be revealed. And it's gonna take, quite honestly, all of eternity for us to continue to get to know God. And in some ways, as Elihu says this here, that God is so great. Remember, we read earlier on, it says that we don't even know the edges of his ways. We're just beginning to see just the, the mere edges of the depths of how great God really is, even in all that we discover of him, and nor can we really know the number of his years to know him in his fullness. Ephesians tells us that for all of eternity, he'll be showing us the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness. We'll be learning throughout all of eternity. That's how incredible God is. It will literally take the, the the span of eternity to keep discovering and learning and knowing more and more about God. You know, uh, wonderful to consider if you ever feel like you've exhausted getting to know God. Well, I've been a Christian for a long time. I don't need to read my Bible anymore or go to Bible studies. You know, I, I know God really well. You really don't. Uh, God is so incredible. There's a whole lot more about God to always get to know. And the more he wants to reveal to us, which makes the relationship very wonderful that he is such a great and awesome God. He then begins to speak of some of the ways God's greatness is seen, particularly in creation and and how God has established things in nature and controls all these things. He says, verse 27, for he draws up drops of water, which then distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. So notice, here's Elihu, in days we believe, as we said before, potentially that, as we said, that Job is the earliest book of Scripture, Uh, potentially being around the time of Abraham, maybe even prior to that time that, that Job may have potentially lived. And take notice, we think we have discovered so much in modern science and technology. I mean, as we get into the chapters ahead, you know, God's gonna start talking about stars and solar systems and things, he's gonna say, do you really think you understand all these kind of things uh, about my creation? I mean, we're so proud of ourselves, all that we've discovered in scientific uh, you know, developments and so forth. Notice, here's Elihu in verse 27 and 28, and what's he already speaking about by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Well, he's already talking about the hydraulic cycle. Uh, he, he, look what he says, verse twenty-seven. He says he draws up the drops of water. That's evaporation. He, he then says in verse twenty-seven, which distill as rain from the midst. That refers to you know evaporation and then condensation or you know distillation, where the, where then the water droplets come together in the crowds, in the in the crowds, <laughs> in the clouds, and then ultimately precipitation. The next part in the process, verse twenty, when the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. So again, God's created all these incredible things, the hydraulic cycle, evaporation, then condensation in the clouds and the clouds moving and at the right time, precipitation then happening and then the process just happening again and again as God keeps the proper balance on the earth to make sure it has what it needs, water for growth of things and mankind to be sustained. And here again, these men who were ancient, they weren't scientists already by just the wisdom of the spirit beginning to understand these very things. He goes on to speak more about God's awesomeness in creation, saying verse twenty-nine, indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds? That is how God has, you know, put forth the, the clouds as a canopy and how they work and move about, different types of, you know, clouds, if you remember from your early days of science class, you know, the cumulus clouds and the different types of so does any man really fully grasp how God's designed and orchestrated all these things in his creation or the thunder that comes from his canopy. Look, he scatters his light upon it and he covers the depths of the sea. Then speaking of the storms, again, rainstorms, thunderstorms, these type of things that God controls and orchestrates in his wonders of nature. He says, verse 31 of God, for by these, he judges the peoples and gives food in abundance. So he speaks of how when God allows these storms to come, rainstorms, thunderstorms, these things that he's established in the cycle of nature, he says God can use these things for different purposes. He mentions two of the purposes there in verse 31, that God can use storms to bring judgment upon people. And if God so chooses, he can do that. God can orchestrate something in nature or creation because he's in control of nature and creation to utilize a storm, to bring judgment in some way if necessary, if he sees it's proper and appropriate. Or he can use such things as well, notice, to give assistance to mankind. The same storms, the rain and so forth is what brings production of food and crops and growth to give food in abundance to help mankind to be sustained as well. He says, verse 32, that God covers his hands with lightning and commands it to strike. His thunder then declares it, and the cattle also, concerning the rising storm. Again, the implication there is referring to how a a thunder or lightning storm takes place. And again, as the air becomes charged with the electric ions and those kind of things. Interesting, this little inference here, how even the animals in creation can discern and recognize these things. I mean, we have all these sophisticated instruments, right, that we use to try and track storms, and and the weather guys still, we don't have any weather people in the church, right? They still never get it right, right? I mean, and they have all this expensive equipment, and we do everything to try and track storms. And the amazing thing, as you do a little research, is what they have also discovered is a lot of times animals— can sense and recognize storms, whether it's like what's referred to here, the cattle sensing the, you know, uh, the the electric charge and currents in the air when a thunderstorm and a lightning storm is brewing and they responsibly either flee or they huddle together or i've heard research before as well saying i don't know much credences to this you could check it on your own that even for example when a potential earthquake is about to strike that animals will begin to flee an area if they have the freedom to do such because they sense something is going on under the earth i mean we have all these things to measure it and can't figure it out probably what we should do is just if the dog starts running just chase the dog you know i mean I mean, it's amazing, you know, God has hardwired all these things into creation and is, again, controlling all these things, the intricacy of God's wisdom and how even the animals can discern these storms and so forth. He says, verse uh, 31 of, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 37, at this, as he thinks about God's greatness and it being displayed in creation, he says, at this, my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice. Now notice he's going to speak about the power of God's voice. That how when God speaks, God speaks with great power. And he's going to compare God's voice to like the power of thunder. This is what he's doing here. He's using again poetic language as we've seen all throughout the book. He says, hear attentively the thunder of his voice, the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He sends it forth under the whole heaven. His lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice and does not restrain them when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice. So he uses a very picturesque way to speak about the voice of God when God communicates. Again, think of lightning and thunder. I mean, those are two things that tend to do what? They get people's attention, right? I mean, we we, we all are very impressed and intrigued by a powerful lightning and thunderstorm. And and whether you want to or not, I mean, they awaken you out of sleep or they get your attention. You see that powerful flash of lightning and then the boom, you know, the, the rumbling of thunder. And here Elihu is using this as an analogy saying this is what the voice of God can be like. That when God speaks, God can speak with such authority and such power whereby, you know, it, it's unmistakable that it's the voice of God saying what he wants to say. You know, Psalm 29 speaks all about the voice of the Lord, how it's powerful enough to break cedars in half, big trees and, and, and lay forests bare. And again, the idea of how when God wants to say something, God has no problem getting his point across. And, you know, I I think about that even in relation to the reality of, you know, the experiences we have in our own lives and the times when you look in the word of God, when God would speak to someone and how it would just it would revolutionize their life. I think of in the New Testament, the occasions when Jesus would just speak to someone and and he wouldn't even have to say a whole lot. He would look at someone like Levi, who was a, a tax collector. Someone who kind of maybe grew up, it seems, maybe disgruntled with the whole you know, fake religious system of the day, the organized establishment of religion that he was exposed to, and then just decided, forget this, I'm done with it. And he just, he just took a total path towards being pagan and heathen and became a tax collector and was despising the society and ripping people off and just living a wild, carnal life, just fully indulging his selfishness and his sinfulness in every way, And Jesus looks at a man like that, and he has to say two words, follow me. And something about the power of the authority of the voice of God through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, was so strong that it says he left everything, and he followed him. He didn't have to think about it. He didn't have to contemplate it. He didn't have to go get therapy for six weeks. He Instant life change, so strong, so powerful was the voice of the Lord when he spoke that at times people would literally instant life change. They would hear the voice of God, they would know that is the voice of my creator and they would just respond. And you know, what a wonderful thing. You know, there I know certainly have been a number of times in my life when I have so like lightning thunder awakened and clear as a bell. Like loud, radical thunder, have clearly heard something the Lord was telling me, and I hope you can testify to that experience as well. When the Lord wants to get your attention, just like a lightning in a thunderstorm, boy, he has no problem doing that. And I don't know about you, but in the same way, we're kind of intrigued by lightning and thunderstorms. Uh, you know, sometimes I find myself saying, "Lord, would you, would you speak like that? Speak like that to me." As bold as lightning and as loud as thunder, Lord, I want to hear loud and clear, make it unmistakable what you're trying to say to me. I believe God wants to speak to us, and the Bible is very evident, and God at times can speak in such a way. And here he's speaking about God's voice thundering like with majestic power his voice can be heard as he thunders marvelously. With his voice, God speak to us more in those ways that we would know that we're hearing from him. He says the end of verse five, and he does great things which we cannot comprehend. Boy, that's certainly a true statement. At times, God works in ways where it, it just, it, you can't even comprehend it. It's, 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 I can't believe it, Lord. <laughs> I just can't believe that you worked in that way. And there are wonderful times where God does things where just, it's like it leaves us beyond our comprehension. Again, I think of how God does great things beyond what we can comprehend, even in regards to the fact of in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that God can give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Again, it's a peace that you can't even comprehend. And it says that don't be anxious for anything but by prayer and petition, present your request to God. When do you do that? When you're feeling anxious. When you're feeling stressed out, overwhelmed, the promise of God is connected to the principle. God says the principle is this. Don't let yourself be overcome with anxieties. You instead, when you feel anxious, present your request to God. It says with thanksgiving, thank you, God, that I don't have to be overwhelmed by this situation or my feelings, which are real. I thank you, God, that I can come to you as the almighty God of all power, creator of heaven and earth. And I thank you that you hear me and that you can help and that you're gonna somehow take care of this and I can just lay it at your feet. And it says that when we do that and we you know, present a request to God with thanksgiving, it says that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, supersedes comprehension, can come in and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we may not have the answers, we may not even have exactly the instantaneous relief of we want the circumstance, but God can flood our soul and flood our mind with a supernatural peace to where we can be contented and be able to at least tolerate and carry on with a supernatural peace from God. And it's a peace whereby it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make, you shouldn't be at peace in that situation. Or others would look and say, how can you possibly be at peace? I mean, you should be on seven different drugs, and how can you possibly not be losing your mind right now? Well, because the peace of God, and I don't comprehend it either, but the peace of God has been given to me supernaturally. As I've sought God, he has honored his promise and given to me peace. And again, just one of many great things God can do that we can't even comprehend. God, I don't know how you're doing it. I can't comprehend it. but but I know it's you and how wonderful when God works in ways beyond our comprehension as the great God doing great things on our behalf and we don't have to figure it out. All we need to do is rejoice in it that he's able to work in those ways. He then goes on to illustrate some of those things that God does that we don't always fully understand how he does them. Verse six, he goes back to speaking of creation again. He says, for he says to the snow, fall on the earth. So as uh, much as I hate shoveling snow, sometimes I have to swallow that. God says it's going to fall on the earth, and I guess I'm supposed to shovel it as much as I don't like to do that. But he can speak to the snow, fall on the earth, likewise to the gentle rain. So he can bring a heavy snow or he can bring a gentle rain. God knows what is needed, and he gives all things in balance and moderation. Or he can give notice not only the gentle rain, but the heavy rain of his strength. And he seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. Now, that's very interesting. In verse six, as he refers to snowstorms or heavy rains, the idea is inclement weather, right? That you get a heavy snowstorm. What happens? The roads shut down. Everything shuts down. And that seems to be what he's referring to there in verse six and seven is that God can send the snowstorm in such a way that it seals the hand that is, it restrains the hand of man from being able to do his work because of the weather so isn't that interesting sometimes god may send a storm a snowstorm to slow everybody down isn't that really what happens a lot of times you know you find yourself at home you're stuck at home and sometimes god says not only do you need to work sometimes god says you're working too much And if I got to slow you down, I'll do something circumstantial to slow you down. And sometimes God sends the snowstorm so that the hand of man cannot work. Notice what he says, verse seven, that all men may know what? His work. So he says, God may send a storm to restrain us from work so that we can reflect on God, so that we can slow down and reflect on God's work and think about God because there's no more better way to use our time then at times that just contemplate and think about God. Oftentimes that's what restores peace to our soul and helps us to think correctly what our life is about and not about. And so sometimes he may cause us to be restrained from work so that we can focus more upon God and focus more upon God's work, which is the more important work than ours. Verse eight, the beasts go into their dens, that is in response to these storms, and they remain in their lairs. From the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind In the cold, from the scattering winds of the north, isn't that interesting? We know where cold winds come from. They come down from the north, right? Warm winds come up from the south. And then when those two collide, that's where our storms come from. And here again, ancient scripture texts, men from the days of old, and they're kind of already by the spirit of God giving them wisdom, understanding, cold coming from the north, warm winds coming from the south. By the breath of God, ice is given. And broad waters are frozen. Also with the moisture, God saturates the thick clouds and scatters his bright clouds. And they swirl about. Again, when the north and the south winds collide, that's what brings about these strong storms, these swirling wind storms. They swirl about being turned by and turned by his guidance that they may do whatever he commands them on the face of the whole earth. He causes it to come, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. So here we even see that God can orchestrate things in nature, whether he creates them or whether he allows them, and he can use those things for his sovereign purposes overall. It says sometimes God may allow a storm and it may have a purpose of correction. There can be storms that have a corrective nature. It doesn't mean every storm is a way of God trying to correct But sometimes God brings about storms, which are storms of correction. Let me give a biblical illustration of that. The prophet Jonah, right? What did Jonah do? He rebelled against God. God told him what he was supposed to do, but he didn't want to do what God was telling him to do. Jonah, I want you to go to the people of Nineveh. I want you to declare truth to them, speak to them. Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. He wanted God just to destroy them. And in his mind, he's thinking, I would rather do anything other than what God has asked me to do. I'm not going. And what did he do? He tried to run from God's will for his life. He tried to do the opposite. He thought somehow I can outrun God, hide from God. He went down to the docks, it says. He went down into the boat. Again, whenever you disobey God, as you, you just go down, 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 down. He paid the fare to get on a boat, to go the opposite direction from what God's plan and purpose was for his life. And that's exactly what happens when you rebel against God. Your life goes in a downward spiral and you pay the fare and all it does is cost you a whole lot of pain, suffering, and a whole lot of other things. What does he end up doing? He gets on the boat. He's going in the opposite direction from God. God says, "Mm, I'm gonna have to course correct here. I don't want you to do what's not my will. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna bring a storm of correction. So God creates a storm, everybody else on board with him because he's going the wrong way are also now suffering as well. And when you're going the wrong direction, whoever's on board with you in life, usually you bring them into the stormy messes with you, right? That's what happens. They say, look, somebody's causing this. They find out it's Jonah, they toss him overboard. He ends up in the belly of a whale or a great fish. And ultimately, what does God do? God vomits him back out right where he was supposed to go anyway. But what was the whole storm for? Correction. Sometimes God will bring storms and they're storms of a correction. And, and I think sometimes if we're airing and we know we're erring, or if we're experiencing a storm, it's fair to say, God, is this storm intended to bring correction? And sometimes God may use a storm for the purpose of correction. He may need to bring stormy waters or stormy conditions because he's trying to course correct our lives. And I think it's good to be open to that. Maybe God's redirecting us onto something that we should be doing instead of what we are currently doing. He says, or it could be for his land, again, for his sovereign purposes to to take care of things that don't even really take into consideration a, a particular need of man. It's just something God's sovereignly doing. Or it could be a storm for his mercy's sake. The idea is actually to help mankind. And God can at times do something difficult and bring a hardship, and it may not be anything to do with punishing us or correcting us. It could be that God's actually trying to do something merciful and good in our lives to spare us from something. We see that happening with Jesus and the disciples when they, at times, a few occasions, experience storms with the Lord. On one occasion, it says that Jesus compelled them to get in a boat and to leave the area they were because the people were wanting to make Jesus king. And Jesus did not come to be a political ruler and a king. And he didn't want his disciples' minds being deceived by the wrong ideas of men of the day. So Jesus knew it would be better for them and more merciful for them to go struggle in a storm to protect them from having wrong ideas that they should not have. So he actually pushed them into some difficulty to actually preserve them from being misguided by the wrong ideas of the people back on the land. And it was, in a sense, Jesus using a storm to actually spare them from something. And sometimes the Lord may let us go through a difficult thing, and it could be some act of his mercy that he's actually shielding us from something more dangerous and more destructive by allowing us in his mercy to go through some temporary challenges in a stormy situation and again, different purposes and reasons God uses storms for. The problem was is that these men in Elihu kept trying to point back to Job as far as, that, well, you're, it's just a correction issue for you, Job. You just There's gotta be sin, uh, and that wasn't the case. We don't wanna misapply a standard in a wrong way, and that was the biggest problem with Job and his friends. He says, verse 14, listen to this, O Job. Stand still, he says, and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of his cloud to shine? Do you know how the clouds are balanced? Do you understand, Job, how God orchestrates the clouds and all those things in the atmosphere, those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Why are your garments hot? Why are you so frustrated and angry when he quiets the earth by the sound south wind? With him you have spread out the skies, strong as cast as a metal mirror. Teach us what we should say to him, for we can prepare nothing because of the darkness. The idea is because of the darkness. The idea is we don't have light to understand all the ways of God, he's saying. Verse 20, should he be told that I wish to speak? If a man were to speak, surely he would be swallowed up. So again, this was a lie whose frustration, remember he felt like that Job was wrong for saying, look, I wish I could just have an audience with God. I mean, everybody's accusing me of, well, this is because of sin in your life, Job. There's some secret issue going on, and you're not dealing with it. And God only lets people suffer if he's you know, disciplining or judging them. And, and Job knew this wasn't the case, and Job kept saying, I wish I could stand before God as my, as my judge and, and that somebody could arbitrate between the two of us, and I can have an audience. And, and again, Elihu felt like this was inappropriate because God was so awesome. And he's thinking, what are, you, what are you thinking, Job? You can't stand in the presence of God. He says, should, should God be told, he says, verse 20, I wished to speak. In other words, he says, are you going to stand before almighty, powerful God and say, I have a thing or two that I'd like to say, God, and you're going to listen up to me here. And, and this is what was bothering Elihu because he was kind of misinterpreting Job's heart uh, and taking offense to it because he was, again, hearing the words of Job but he really wasn't listening to what Job was saying. And this is where he's kind of, again, harshly accusing Job in ways that he really shouldn't be, adding misery to his current suffering. Look what he says, verse 21. Even now, he says, men, and this is, again, referring to the greatness of God again. Even now, men cannot look at the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed, and cleared them. Now, again, he talks about the impossibility of looking into the light In the skies, no doubt, probably a reference to the sun there. And he's saying, look, we understand this. You know, if it's not a cloudy day and the sun is exposed, you you can't stand and stare directly into the sunlight. And and that sun is 93 million miles away from this earth. Imagine how hot and bright that thing really is. (laughs) And we, with our human eyes, can't even gaze directly upon the light that God created and God put there. And he's saying, look, if you can't stand and look face-to-face into the sun, which God created as one of his many lights that he's established, he's saying, do you really think you could stand in the presence of the light and the glory and the radiance of God himself and look face-to-face in God and all of his greatness and his glory? Again, remember when uh, Saul of Tarsus was broken by his stubbornness of Jesus in Acts chapter 9, and the testimony is recorded a few different times, but it says that when Jesus appeared to them, it was uh, when the sun was at its midday strength, again, the bright, hot, Mideastern sun, and it says that Jesus' brilliance and glory was outshining the sun. Now just think about that. How powerful is the glory, the brilliance, the beauty, the, the light and power of the Lord Jesus Christ if he outshines the sun? I mean, that's impressive, and yet sometimes we can be trivial or irreverent. You know, Well, when I get up there, I'm going to talk to the big man about a thing or two. Oh, my goodness, are you kidding me? <laughs> You're going to be thankful you got a glorified body so you don't melt <laughs> because that's why we can't see God face-to-face now because these human temporal frames and bodies we have now, if we tried to look upon the Lord now, we just, our face would melt. We wouldn't be able to comprehend it or be able to take it because of how awesome and incredible God is. We can't even look into the sun, let alone the brightness of the glory of God. He says, verse 22, he comes from the north as a golden splendor. With God is awesome majesty. As for the almighty, we cannot find him. The idea is you know, fully discover all of his ways because he is excellent in power, in judgment and abundant justice. He does not oppress, therefore men fear him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise in heart. So he says, look, God is awesome. He's majestic, he's brilliant, he's incredible. He is so far above and beyond in who he is comparison to what humanity is. He says, this is why the fear of God is birthed in the heart of men. God doesn't show partiality to anybody. God's not impressed with anyone. He's God. And he says, and this is why men do and should fear him. Now, as we come to the end of chapter thirty seven, finally there's this ah, the sense of relief when we realize chapter thirty-eight verse one tells us then the Lord answered. And for those of us who tracked all along listening to you know Eliapaz and bill dad and you know these friends of job giving their comments and job having to dispute with them we've been waiting for god to finally interject and to speak into the situation however take into consideration doesn't it seem like that though it's been what since chapter 2 so 2 minus 37 it's been 35 long chapters where job has been suffering struggling, enduring pain, hardship has gone through tragedy, and it seems like God's been silent, right? Seems like he's just been asleep. And you have to wonder if, again, after all that time, how difficult it was that God for a series of time allowed himself to remain silent and he chose not to speak And he chose to almost maybe be falsely accused somewhat until he determined the right time and the right hour to then speak. But when God then does begin to speak, really wonderful and really powerful things begin to happen. You know, it's a good reminder for all of us to some degree that honestly, a lot of times God can use stormy situations and suffering in our lives to accomplish greater good and purposes that we often don't realize in the midst of the hardships. But God has a way of orchestrating things, even through suffering, through difficulty, and through hardship from time to time. You know, this reminds me in many ways of what we even see in the, in the New Testament. If you'll turn with me just briefly before we conclude tonight, you know, two occasions where we see God in the flesh, on the earth, through Jesus, and basically we see God using storms, times of suffering, struggle, hardship, like Job was going through, to basically orchestrate and accomplish things actually for the good of his people. It tells us in Matthew chapter 14, on one occasion where there was a storm, notice Matthew 14 verse 22, it says immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Notice, immediately, he's kind of compelling, forcing them abruptly into the boat. You've got to get into this boat. You've got to get out of here so that there's an abruptness to them. And he is the one putting them into this boat and then he's gonna then put them out the sea and he's gonna put them into the storm. And they're going to be in the center of the will of God because Jesus put them into the storm. Don't tell me sometimes you can't be in a storm, a struggle, a hardship, and a challenge, and it means that you're not in the center of will, God's will because sometimes that is where we're supposed to be. Jesus literally directed them out. Again, this is the occasion where John's gospel tells us the people were developing wrong ideas about who Jesus was and their wrong spiritual ideas were concerning the Jesus. And Jesus didn't want his disciples to have a material mindset He wanted them to have an eternal mindset and a spiritual mindset. So he says, you know what? To spare and protect you, I need to send you out in the storm. You'll be better struggling in the storm. You'll be more in my will struggling than you would comfortable here getting wrong ideas about what life is about. So he compels them to get into the boat. When he sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea Tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So, what does he do? He sends them out into struggle, and he's allowing them to struggle. They're there till the middle of the night, struggling in a storm. The waves and the wind is contrary. The idea is everything is resisting them. It is hard, it is difficult. They're struggling to just stay afloat. You ever felt like that? <laughs> just struggling to even stay afloat. They're not getting anywhere. They're just literally struggling to keep their heads above water and not completely sink. And again, it's not like Jesus didn't check the weather forecast. He sent them into that. He sent them directly into that storm. This was a part of his will for their lives. It wasn't because he didn't love them wasn't because he didn't care about them it says in the fourth watch of the night jesus then went to them again he waited and waited and waited but then at his prescribed time he went to them walking on the sea and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea they were troubled saying it is a ghost you don't usually see men walking on the water in storms on top of that and they cried out for fear but immediately jesus spoke to them saying be of good cheer it is i do not be afraid. So they begin to receive spiritual revelation. Peter answered and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus said, come. And when he, Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water. I always underline that because people like to talk about Peter sinking. When's the last time you walked on water? Peter actually had the courage to get out. <laughs> Peter actually took the step of faith to get out of the boat. He might've sunk at one point. But I don't know anybody else in the Bible that walked on water other than Jesus and one human being, Peter, who trusted in Jesus's power and experienced things because he was willing to step out of the boat when nobody else would. He was willing to step out and take a chance and he experienced the power of the Lord because he exercised faith and gave Jesus a chance to do something miraculous in and through his life. So Peter's walking on water, but of course we know what happens. It tells us, however, but when he saw the wind was boisterous, He looked now at the storm. He got his eyes off the Lord. He was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. That's all he could say before he sank. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then when he got into the boat, notice the wind ceased, the storm stopped. So again, here's an occasion. God in the flesh, Jesus does what? He forces them into a storm for the very purpose, really, of spiritual revelation. Had they not gone through that storm, they would not have seen things about Jesus that they saw. And Jesus saw it more valuable that they could see things about him, his power, his glory, his greatness, that, I mean, the things that he could even do in their life, that he could give them the power to walk on water, and overcomes, and they saw things about Jesus and learned things about Jesus and had spiritual revelation that they never would have experienced if they were in a comfortable place on the land. Look, there are times to be comfortable, but sometimes there are lessons that can't be learned when I'm comfortable. There are lessons about the greatness of the Lord and things that he can do, his power and faith and, and things about him we see right when we're in the hard times. And we really have to look to him and see things that we never would have seen in any other way. Quickly turn with me to Mark chapter four, one other storm before we conclude and spend a little time in worship. Mark chapter four, here's another occasion. Again, hardship, struggling storm. God, Jesus in the flesh does the same thing on another occasion. This is another time, Mark four, verse 35. Let me just read down through it. It says on the same day when evening had come, Jesus said to the disciples, let us. So now they're going to go together, cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was and other little boats were also with him and a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. So they're sinking again, struggling and sinking but what was Jesus doing? He was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. Boy, doesn't it sound like the last thirty-five chapters of Job. God, it's like you've been sleeping for thirty-five chapters of my life. <laughs> the last thirty-five hours, the last thirty-five days, thirty-five weeks. God, are you sleeping? I'm struggling, I'm suffering. You're not saying anything. You're not solving this, God. What are you, sleeping? Isn't it interesting? Here's God in the flesh. He's sleeping. <laughs> they're struggling. And he's, Jesus is sleeping Again, because nothing, nothing unsettles Jesus. We should remember that when we're freaking out about things. Jesus is asleep while they're freaking out in the storm because he's at complete peace. So they awoke him. And they're like us, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Isn't that what we're quick to do when we're struggling? Don't, don't you care? Your silence and your lack of resolving the struggle must indicate you don't care about me. Don't you care about me? Why would you let me struggle? Lord, don't you care? We're perishing, don't you see? Then he arose, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm, but he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? ouch and look at verse 41 look at the end result and they feared exceedingly isn't that how chapter 37 just end ended men fearing the authority and greatness of god they feared exceedingly and said to one another who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him so what does jesus do here in mark 4 This time, he takes them through a storm to bring them to a desired destination. He says, let us cross over to the other side. Now, Jesus was in the boat with them. The storm happens. They're freaking out. They think they're gonna sink. They wake Jesus up. Don't you care? We're perishing. We're gonna die. We're not gonna make it. Listen, what did Jesus say to them? Let us cross over to the other side. If Jesus says you're crossing to the other side, as long as you stay on board with Jesus, you got nothing to worry about. Just don't abandon ship. Just stay on board with Jesus. As long as they stood on board with Jesus, they were completely, safe. it didn't matter how crazy it got. It didn't matter how big the storm got, how hard it got. Jesus was on board with them. More than that, they were on board with Jesus. He was captaining the ship and he was completely at peace because he knew he's in total control where he's at rest. And what are they doing? They're learning about themselves. What do they learn? That they had struggles with doubt, that they had struggles with fear, that they had struggles with faith and unbelief. And Jesus draws it out of them. Look, this storm's teaching you things about yourself, Jesus was saying to them. It's teaching you that your faith really isn't as strong as you would like to think it is. You don't trust me, and I needed to develop your faith. I want to strengthen your faith. I want to increase your faith because faith is important to our relationship with the Lord. And so sometimes the Lord squeezes us like a sponge to let come out of us what's really inside of us. And sometimes it's the storm that causes us to see that we really do have some struggles, maybe with doubt and fears and faith. And and the Lord wants to develop that. And he has to show it to us. But they also learn things as well about the Lord. They're humbled by him. They're in all of him and his greatness. At the end of the chapter, it says, they're fearing exceedingly saying, who can this be that the wind and the sea obey him? And they're just astonished by Jesus. And you know, sometimes it's as the Lord takes us through things and then ultimately he gets us through to the other side of it that we find ourselves with a whole new appreciation for Jesus in our lives, right? Because we realize, man, Lord, you took me through that and you were on board the whole time. And all I did was hang on for dear life in the storm. And Lord, you got me to the other side of it. You got me to the other side. And see, getting to the other side, the next chapter reveals a whole new season because there are ministry developments and things that happen. And look, sometimes the Lord will take us through a hardship and a difficulty and a struggle to teach us things about ourselves, to teach us more things about the Lord, and sometimes to ultimately bring us to a different place in our life where we need to be next for the next season and the new things that he has in store for us. Let's stand together. Let's pray.